Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. We have reports of an explosion, possibly with an improvised explosive device going off. We currently have casualty estimates in the hundreds, adults and children included. Police, fire, and EMS are on the scene. You can expect patients to arrive at your facility in 10 minutes. Okay, everyone, let's get going. We all have roles assigned already. Can you please call for Code Orange for the hospital? So imagine you're in the middle of a busy day in the emergency department and you get this patch over the phone. We currently have casualty estimates in the hundreds, adults and children included. Are you ready for a disaster to happen in your area? McMaster Emergency Medicine recently convened a mock disaster scenario at the Hamilton General Hospital in the Margaret Charters Auditorium, where we simulated the ebbs and flows of a code orange disaster. And brought our residents, nurses, and other volunteers together to make this scenario as real as possible. Let's listen to what some of the participants have to say. All right, so I'm here with two of our nurses from Hamilton General Hospital who have just been through the disaster sim. So I'm hoping to get some gut reactions from you two. Can you just introduce yourselves? I'm Tiffany, I'm an RN. Uh, Rachel, RN. Excellent. And so you guys are both experienced emergency nurses, and we work with you every day here in at least the Hamilton General Hospital. Well, where's your gut reaction to this whole simulation? Um, it was quite exhausting, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, time went by really quickly, but it was quite an amazing experience to be a part of. Okay. Yeah. All right. What yep. about yourself? I think exactly the same. It was it was confusing at times. Uh, the communication could have been better. We, we were based, uh, myself and Tiffany, in Raz, and there were times where there was 12 doctors and then one doctor for large chunks of time. So there was a, you know, a few communication barriers, issues, mm-hmm. or whatever. Okay. But I think generally, overall, it was a fantastic experience to be a part of. I mean, honestly, that's probably not unrealistic, yes, right? Exactly. Yeah, In a very busy day when we have lots of busy trauma patients and resuscitations, often the rapid assessment zone, the minor zone, is going to be where we... Pulls resources. There's no one there, right? Like Sometimes you guys get pulled, sometimes the docs get pulled, mm-hmm. sometimes there's a whole waiting room full of patients inside and they're all staring angrily at, at us because we can't get to them, but we've got sick, dying patients somewhere else, yeah. right? Yeah, so that that's really interesting that the simulation was able to mimic that. Um, anything that you learned about our residents or the uh, the flow of things or that you didn't know before? It was nice to see them function more independently. Ah. Um, it w- I actually congratulate them and they should be very proud of themselves for functioning more independently um, in this scenario because they were forced to um, and it was a good use of their time and skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and their critical thinking. Yeah, their I think critical the, the, the doctor-to-nurse ratio was, was reversed and so they had to do a lot of things themselves and had to think pretty fast. Yeah, it yeah. was nice to see them do that. 
So my name is Jennifer DeJager. I'm a teacher in the Halton District School Board in Burlington. I'm a, also an ICU nurse at the Jervinsky Hospital, casual staff now. And I teach a healthcare program. It's a specialist high skills major that where the kids are focusing in on specializing in a healthcare role. So medicine, nursing, physio, respiratory therapy, things like that. Excellent. And so how are you involved in all this disaster sims though? So I actually went to Discovery Day at McMaster University, and I met you, <laughs> Dr. Jan, mm-hmm. at uh, the Gridlock session, which is a game we're going to get, actually, for our class. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just was talking with uh, you and Teresa about some opportunities for kids, and you guys mentioned the disaster simulation, and I thought, what a great experience for the students to kind of see the uh, physician's role and, and uh, allied health as well in, in a big disaster and so that they get that experience from being a victim themselves and also the role of a physician and all of that. Yeah, because we don't want to twit your high school students that you brought through the eMERGE as real patients. We don't ever want to wish that on them so this right. is as close as they can get right. to experiencing healthcare like, like right in front of them, right? Mm-hmm. So how many students did you bring? So I brought 12 students. Okay, and yeah. are they like super excited? They're so pumped to yeah. be here and yeah. they're, they're already learning so yeah. much. We're only halfway through the session. So as everyone knows, the emergency department unit clerks are the fulcrum of communication. On a good day, they're like air traffic control. On a day like today, if it was real, uh, they are really important for making things flow. So Jen is one of our experienced unit clerks, and so she was recruited because she's one of our best, and I wanted to have a chat with her about her, her reflections on it. So how is this different from the normal chaos that you usually referee? Well, um, it came in quicker. Patients came in quicker and louder. Um, I think the staff was experienced enough to know which areas the patients needed to go into and triage them appropriately so they could have their best care. It was definitely loud. It was definitely interesting. What was the most interesting part of the simulation for you? What was the most difficult, unexpected simulation kind of hiccup that you thought? I think for me it was um, the children coming in. Oh, children. Tell me about that. So the children came in and we didn't have a parent to go with them. Oh, so like lost children. That's right. So we had lost children or we had children that weren't injured but they had an injured parent and we were trying to locate them. Oh, wow. That's a real consideration. It is. Yeah, it's really important to think about how you do it. So was there any special processes that you did to try to figure things out? I think, well... First, you got to keep them calm. Yeah. So I had the once we re, once we realized and ha, the triage nurse took a look at them and and one of the docs took a look at them, make sure they weren't hurt. Then we just put them in a calmer place. Social work came out, talked to them, and then we put them in a safer place up near uh, up near me. And I had them draw pictures. Oh, so they were coloring. Yeah, Excellent. we had them color. Okay. Yeah, okay. had them. Color. All right. Well, hopefully that would be something that we could do. The I mean, obviously yes. that's a unexpected thing that I think that we don't always think about would be what happens to kids whose parents are maybe critically injured That's and right. can't take care of them, right? So- Hi everyone, my name is Prasa. I'm one of the PGY5 radiology residents and it's actually a pleasure to be involved in uh, this particular disaster same. It's my first one. And uh, truly speaking, uh, you know, it's been a bit of an eye-opener because um, the level of planning required as well as the level of uh, specifics uh, that goes into executing something of this caliber is quite uh, impressive. Yeah. Excellent. So, so um, from the radiologist's perspective, did you have any, did you have any uh, unexpected challenges or did you have some surprises that you found? Uh, the way that this particular sim was um, tailored, uh, what was surprising to me was that radiology wasn't utilized as heavily or in as uh, chunky a flow-limiting manner that I uh, expected. 
Um, so, you know, as we're going through the sim, I totally expected within the first half an hour to have a bunch of cases on the list, but that wasn't the case. And so there was a lot of triaging happening, a lot of selective imaging ordering. Uh, and by the time we ex actually experienced a tiny bit of a bottleneck, it was uh, well into the second hour of the sim. Ah, so that was that was interesting. Yeah. So there was also back. a time delay, right? Exactly. So you can't brace for impact right away as a radiologist. No. You're probably expecting the workup to still take some time, That's right. stabilization to take some time. Exactly. Yeah. And then yeah. so what we can do maybe, uh, if this was a real scenario, is to plan for that upcoming and triage our requests in a timely manner to get them done, either yeah. as soon as possible, yeah. or maybe hold off on any yeah. absolutely non-emergent Or maybe requests. call in an extra tech, exactly. and calling an ultrasound tech to see IVs if they can do all like that stuff. Yeah. Totally, yeah. 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 Excellent. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much thank for participating. You. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I'm Claire Walner, emergency physician at BHP, uh, with Seeper and Hamilton Health Sciences. So BHP being base hospital, base hospital physician. physician. And CEPR is the Center for Paramedic Research. Education and Research. All right, yep. got it. Okay. My name is Rachel File. I'm a BLS paramedic in Hamilton. I've been on the road for uh, just over a year now. Excellent. And? My name is Rhea Vanort. I recently graduated from paramedic school and I got my AMCA in February. Excellent. So we've got a range of experience here. Um, from your perspective, what kind of participation do you have as medics in our disaster zone? Uh, I think it's important for paramedics to be involved because we're the first ones to see the patient yeah. and sort of decide initially how they get triaged. Okay. Um, and that affects how they're cared for in the emerge department as well. So you did some field triage simulation? Yeah, yeah. correct. So okay. uh, I think a total of close to 90 patients came through. Some were walking wounded and uh, yeah. some we triaged immediately, brief life-saving interventions and then passed on and decided who to transport immediately, how okay. many to transport together. and sort of working outside the normal parameters. Oh, that's very mm -hmm. cool, very cool. Um, and so what was your perspective in terms of how things flowed compared to what you normally see on a ride-out or a shift? I mean, you've been on ride-outs, obviously. Yes. Yes. So what was it like? Well, it's definitely sw switching that mindset is a challenge. Yeah. So I feel like as much practice as you can get doing triaging, it's important for us as paramedics to be able to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Claire, you can tell us a little bit more triage because you actually are creating a whole card game. Yeah. Um, about this. So what's the difference between uh, mass casualty triage and the triage that we all know and love in the emergency department? Yeah. So one of the differences, which is something that we was alluding to, is instead of having one patient that you're trying to do a more detailed triage on and a lot of stabilization before you hand over, now all of a sudden you're facing. 5, 10, 15, 20 patients all at once that you need to really rapidly assess and then decide what are the immediate life-saving things that you need to do and who are you going to transfer first. And then as in this event, as the simulation went on, they also had to balance immediate transfers out of this hospital to other places. So they had to balance both parts of the system. Hi, my name is Megan Doyle. I'm one of the pediatric emergency doctors at McMaster uh, Children's Hospital and uh, I'm also a simulation facilitator specialist. Excellent. So Megan's been around the sim environments from small sims to big sims, and she's been really doing this for quite a while now. So um, what are your reflections as a sim educator about the role of mass casualty incident simulations like this? What is your take on it? Mass casualty incident simulation, I think, is one of the most challenging things as a sim facilitator to pull off logistically. But as an educator, I think they play a huge role in allowing us to think about 
how do you problem solve and how do you help people learn to problem solve when you're in a situation that requires resources you don't have, staff you don't have, and uh, planning together in a way that you don't see every day? Oh, right, yeah, because they're rare events. And so just like the in my world, I think of education at large, but simulations mm-hmm. plays a really special role, I think, in education mm-hmm. in that it's supposed to prepare you for high acuity, low frequency, mm-hmm. right, events. Yes. And so halo events, right? Um, yes. So I think disasters are hopefully a halo event for most places. And so I think that what you're describing Absolutely. is the need to do that kind of simulation. Yes. Yeah. And so I think it varies. Like, I know that some of our neighboring hospitals have been doing in-situ simulation. Yes. And we're doing one that's just, like, it's in the hospital, but I would call it an ectopic simulation, right? Oh, that's a good that's word. That's not for what it. it's called. But, yeah. like, it's, there's another specialized term for it. I can't remember what it is. I but, can't remember either. Um, it's interesting that uh, we can actually... Uh, do this kind of stuff, and so we're really privileged to have the space to do it, because otherwise I guess we'd have to work into a warehouse or something. Yeah, I mean, I have been part of uh, mass casualty sims in our pediatric emergency department when I was a fellow at CHEO, and it is a huge undertaking uh, to use that space, so I think using this is great. From an education perspective, I think the communication skills you learn in any sim um, really get tested in this type of scenario. The because you can try closed-loop communication, but then there's also little loops with your little team around one patient. Yeah. And then what about the whole system, right? Like, you have to think about the closed-loop communications yes. to the doc in charge, the nurse in charge. Because if the information doesn't flow up the ranks, then yep. all of a sudden things fall apart, right? Yeah, there was a really interesting scenario from the first situation where some verbal orders were miscommunicated between someone saying ibuprofen and someone hearing hydromorphone. Oh, my gosh. That could be and a huge mirror. So the hydromorphone ended up being delivered. It was at a dose, not at all what had been ordered as ibuprofen. Thank Thankfully, <laughs> the nurse had said, this is the medication I think is supposed to be given, gave two milligrams. Yeah, okay. But it was neat as an educator to debrief that conversation mm. with the people involved and have them recognize the errors, recognizing themselves, the importance of that, and to and then, both be able to support yeah. them feeling bad for this error, yeah. but then I, I also think that's something that neither of them will uh, forget, and yeah, for sure. that and clarification then, piece. And it sounds like that can happen with any simulation, but it's really yeah. so much more heightened here. Because yes. it's in the context of all that chaos, and maybe on a one-on-one sim, in like a with a mannequin in a in a safer environment where there wasn't the chaos, where there wasn't the constant interruptions, wasn't mm-hmm. fifty other people talking and the ambient noise, you might not have made that mistake. But in yeah. this context, insights you or in mm-hmm. this situation, you would actually maybe force that error almost, right? There's yeah. a huge difference, I think, absolutely, yeah. between the controlled sim environment of a sim lab versus... And two-hour m- marathon, right? Exactly. So now I got the pleasure to speak with uh, Dr. Frank Bailey. Uh, Frank's a bit of a legend around here as a trauma doc, and he's done some eMERGE time himself, and so he's kind of feeling the heat, and he's part of the dark team today. I'm hoping to get his gut reactions on the uh, orchestrated chaos that we have here and compare that to like real-life disaster situations that he might have seen. Luckily, not seen any big real-life disasters, uh, but it was, this was excellent, one of the best disaster exercises I've seen, particularly in terms of uh, the setting of in the ER and how to use the whole ER resources and how to ensure that staff are adequately 
preps and so on. Mm-hmm. So I, and, and overall, I think it was very, very well run. run. Mm-hmm. Much bigger organisation to this than mm-hmm. it used to be in the past. Uh, so very impressive. Um, so today I was the surgical resident, which is uh, a touch ironic because I used to be uh, a surgical resident and then uh, I saw the light and, and switched to Emerge. So while in character today, I, I felt that it emulated the, the chaos of being a surgery resident on call times 10. Can you uh, imagine if you actually were that resident on call and this happened? I think after today I can, you know, while in character. You know, I felt the same sort of stresses that I would feel while on a really busy call at the hospital. But out of character, there was this sort of, what my colleagues were talking about, an organized chaos. So while there were moments uh, where it felt like it was all falling apart, you know, we would be saved by the the organization of it all. And so it it really was uh, what I felt to be high fidelity. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, so let me ask you a question. Like, you're role playing the surgical resident. Does that mean that you actually, um, actually went to like the virtual OR, or how did it all work? Like, did you just did you just see patients emerge, and then like what you probably would do in real life, send the patient up to your surgery attending, who was probably operating nonstop? Right. So yeah. logistically, how it worked was there were two separate surgical services. I was part of the ward surgical, so what I would do is I would go into the eMERGE. Uh, If I was acting as ortho, I would help with splinting in the eMERGE. If I was acting as plastics, I would go in and I would help with uh, burn dressings. Um, But if there were patients that needed actual ORs, then they would call the quote-unquote trauma service, played by staff Dr. Chris Hyde, and then uh, he would whisk those patients away to the OR, but again, you know, emulating the high fidelity scenario. Um, if the ORs were backed up or super busy, a lot of those patients would have to wait in the quote unquote department. Wow, that sounds like a high pressure cooker situation. For sure. Well, thanks for sharing those insights. I'm going to be asking some of your other colleagues as well. For sure. Uh, maybe we'll talk to one of them. Got it. Uh, so here I am with uh, Sonia, Sonia Wakeling, uh, who's uh, just participated as well. Uh, in the mass casualty event simulation. So hashtag Mac disaster sim if you want to look at the pictures, right? So you can feel the heat, uh, you know, in, uh, in listening to this podcast. Sonia, what did it feel like it was, for you? It was exactly as Kyle said, I thought, organized chaos. I was the ECG tech, so I had a lot of opportunity to take in the atmosphere of the room. Yeah. What were you most impressed by? What were you most impressed by? I think by the the calm environment that was played by the commander who was hanging out in the region that we were. Oh, who's that? Uh, I think that was Dr. Spencer McDonald. Okay, yes, yes. He was, he was the he was, he was the emergency doc in charge. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he, so he was leading the charge for everyone. Yeah, um, so he, he, was, he seemed calm. He was very calm. I'm trying to get some FaceTime with him and see if he, actually he was felt right behind calm. us. Um, but I, it, it was a really nice uh, location to be standing because we could appreciate the chaos that was going on in the apartment as well as the patients that were walking in wounded as well, um, looking for their loved ones, uh, screaming because they were in pain, as well as the media that, that stormed oh, in wow. during, during the middle of the simulation. So. Very interesting. So um, you're one of the lucky bunch that get to do the disaster sim as a one, a three, and then a someday hopefully a five. And Maybe you'll we'll be, be running it, right? Yeah. Uh, so l- lots of to look forward to, eh? Certainly, All right. yeah. Okay, I'm going to get uh, Casey, Casey McKenzie, <laughs> who uh, I guess you were role-playing the... Uh, the internal medicine team, is that correct? Yeah, so I was right. the SMR uh, for the ward. Oh my gosh. I know. 
Oh my gosh. I know. But <laughs> let's be honest, the, uh, in an MCI, medicine's not really the star of the show in terms of all the services. What role did you play? I agree, I was not the star of the show. Um, because it was mainly trauma, right? Like, it's it not like if trauma, it was an infectious yeah. disease situation, <laughs> that would be you guys. But, but what did you do during this? Yeah, so I, I found it uh, during the simulation, I was really busy at the start because basically they needed to clear bed space. Um, oh, okay. So all of our patients that so kind of. With decanting. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I got super busy at the beginning and then I had a bit of a lull, and then periodically I would just kind of help them. Um, make some space for the patients who kind of came in and weren't part of the disaster simulation. Okay, very interesting. So every doctor really has a role in all of this is what you're trying to tell me, right? Like even if you think that the cardiologist or the internist, they can't help in a disaster sim, all hands on deck, right? So show up if you can. Absolutely, and everyone does their part and pulls together. Excellent. All right, I'm here now with the man himself. The man of the hour at this time, having run Disaster Sim times two today, a feat that has not previously been done at Mac Emerge, uh, Dr. Ali Mullah. Can uh, you, uh, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm tired. That was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. We had lots and lots of people involved, which was great. I think we had over 150 people involved this year. Uh, lots of people from different specialties, different experience levels. Uh, everybody was really engaged. It was great. Yeah. I think the reaction was awesome. Uh, it was really cool that each kind of of the two teams, even though the conditions were largely the same, uh, actually handled everything quite differently. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's obvious uh, differences in kind of how people approach this and how the kind of leadership changes the management. So that was definitely interesting to see. And I think uh, some of the metrics we actually kind of were able to collect, uh, if we're able to actually show that to some of the participants, uh, I'm curious to see kind of what response we get from that. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and so can you just give us a recap of exactly what happened? Sure. So the actual scenario? Yeah, that's great. Sure. Yeah. yeah, so the scenario was actually an uh, improvised explosive device, um, an explosion of a bomb that actually went off in the underground parking garage at Tim Hortons Field, uh, happening during a uh, Hamilton Ticats Toronto Argonauts game, which actually just went on the Labor Day Classic, just happened a couple of days ago, so that was actually the inspiration. So we had multiple casualties there, uh, blast injuries, and then also we had a, a trampling uh, that also happened as people tried to exit the building. A lot of it was actually um, influenced by the Manchester incident uh, that happened previously, so a lot of the conditions were, were similar to that, and that's where a lot of the literature actually came from. Okay, very interesting. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that in that situation, every eMERGE needs to think about how they might prepare for something like that. I mean, most emerges actually don't have maybe a big stadium like ours, but it could happen with something else. It could be faulty engineering. There's all sorts of things that could happen that would lead to building collapse and stampede. So even if someone just yells bomb in a theater, people can Absolutely. get yeah. like, uh, trampled, right? Yeah. So yeah. And, and we see that. I mean, often you see that even in cases where um, you have one single gunshot that goes off in a crowded place. Or a cr firecracker, Or right? a firecracker or mm -hmm. anything. And, and mm -hmm. um, people don't realize kind of what's going on and you have yeah. uh, kind of mass tramplings. We saw it in, in Toronto after their incidents as well, yeah. um, where people were kind of hyper-aroused. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely something where you just need to be prepared for a, a mass quantity of patients. And it doesn't really matter uh, how many of those patients are. What really matters is the capacity and the surge capacity that yeah. you have within your department. Yeah, if you're like a, a small rural yeah. ED, 
a, a code orange or a mass casualty is maybe four or five trauma patients, heavy trauma patients. Mm -hmm. Yep. If um, you're a single provider, two nurses, you can imagine you could easily surge beyond that. Yep. So excellent. Okay. Well, thank you very much for those who want to check out his other segment. Uh, Ali's talked about how he learned all this stuff and how he's been working on his masters of disaster, which is pretty awesome um, in a previous episode. And you can look that up on Apple podcasts or uh, wherever you listen to Macamurge uh, podcast. So uh, thanks so much. Thank you. When we imagine the worst case scenario, we often think about what a disaster might look like to our personal family, to ourselves, but rarely do we think about the impact for our whole community. I think it's important for us to think about how we might prepare ourselves for situations that go beyond what a reasonable person might expect to experience on any given day in the emergency department. Mass casualty simulations such as this one are an example of how we might prepare better. Whether it is thinking about what we would do if a bus rolls over or train derails or heaven forbid a mass shooting were to occur, are you ready in your emergency department what might you do to prepare? These are questions that we want all of our region's listeners to think about as they go forward into their year. How can you be best prepared to serve your community in their time of need? All right, so that's another segment from Math Merge Podcast. This is Teresa Chan, over and out. Thanks for listening. Hello everyone and welcome to Residence Corner. I'm your host, Joanna. Most of the Residence Corner episodes thus far have been about a particular fellowship or work that our residents are involved in. Today it's a little bit different, as we're going to take a deeper look at a key aspect of medical education. As many of you know, the competency-based by design curriculum, known as CBD, was launched in 2017 here in McMaster. Our current PGY2 cohorts are the first group of residents to formally go through this. As a resident, have you ever been at the end of your shift waiting to get an evaluation and been asked about what your EPAs are? How do you choose one at the end of your shift? Have you ever been unclear about what the goals of the EPAs are? Are EPAs just another thing on our to-do list as residents? As a staff, are you aware of how to use EPAs to give feedback? Or do you know what the numeric evaluation of 1 to 5 entails? Well, to answer these questions, I have with me today our very own podcast host, clinical educator extraordinaire, leader of the CBD curriculum, and the brains behind the Mac Emerge podcast initiative, Dr. Teresa Chan, better known by my fellow residents as T. Chan. Joining her is one of my colleagues, Dr. Chad Singh, a current PGY2 in the FRCP Emergency Medicine Program at McMaster. Thanks so much for having us, Joanna. Agreed. Thank you so much for having me here. Our pleasure. Now, T. Chen, maybe we'll start off with you, if that's okay. Tell us a little bit about what CBD is and what the value of it is, rather. So it's an unfortunate acronym because it sounds a lot like something else that recently <laughs> been has been, you know, legalized in Canada. But Competence by Design is a program that was initiated as the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada's um, version of competency-based medical education. So it's like kind of like branded TM, like, I think that they'll be okay with us talking about it here, but definitely it's their version of it. Gotcha. 
And I know you've done a lot of work in this and you're definitely the leader of this here locally for sure. Now, Chad, we were talking a little bit offline earlier in the year about how your view of the EPAs has changed over your residency training thus far. Although my cohort of current PGY3s are not part of the formal CBD curriculum, we currently use the EPAs for evaluations and a lot of us just wanna get an evaluation done. Maybe get some constructive feedback with that. Now, how about you? What has your approach been more recently with these EPAs? Definitely. So over the first year of my residency training, there was a transition from thinking of EPAs as a chore or a simple evaluation tool to actually using them to try and goal formulate on shift. For example, uh, sometimes I would see that I was lacking the EPAs in doing slit lamps. Today, I want to spend the entire day seeing as many eye presentations as possible and using those specific EPAs to guide my learning goals. Yeah, it sounds very much like it's a way of taking charge of your own learning, self-directed, if I may say so. Was that the goal behind it all, T. Chen? Yeah, I think in terms of how we approach medical education in the past, like when I was a resident, it was almost like the entire workplace-based assessment uh, system didn't exist. Like we had an end of shift thing. It was like a card with all the cameras rolls, like one to 10, like, and it wasn't very good at being able to articulate what I should have been learning. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like the entire workplace-based curriculum was actually hidden. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talk about the hidden curriculum being about like the, the, the other things that are untangible about medicine. And yet everything in education was hidden, which was a little bit crazy. And so what we ended up doing was um, when I was an education fellow in my fourth year, I was starting my master's program. I met with John Sherboneau and my program director at the time, Ian Prera, and we talked about how I might change the workplace-based assessment form. I went into a deep dive in the literature, and at the time, uh, Sherboneau was working on a big project to define what competency-based medical education would look like. And he sent me like 600 papers, I think, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I went to do a hovel and emerge with my hair sticking out in all directions and realized it's not one form to rule them all. <laughs> um, and so in that like Lord of the Rings inspired moment, I realized that what we needed was um, what we now call a program of assessment or programmatic assessment. Mm -hmm. And the idea would be that um, we should be sampling many different domains and then combining it all together in some kind of sensible portfolio that would demonstrate that you knew what you were doing, right? Because you can imagine, like, our specialty is really diverse. There's so mm -hmm. many situations, so many different kinds of patients, and we have to be able to make some inferences that you can take mm -hmm. care of all of them. So we're not going to be able to sample every single encounter that you have, but could we take some snapshots, some biopsies, right? Like when you do a liver biopsy, you're not doing autopsy. You're not taking out the whole liver and looking at it under the microscope. You're taking little pieces to see, if, uh, is there work to be done there or is that okay? Do, mm -hmm. do you need chemo or not? Here, we're just sampling your work to say, hey, do you need some help with communication skills, for instance, or mm -hmm. not? And so I think the, the background behind this is to, to make explicit um, and take um, the chance to tell everyone, including the trainees, what it means to be a specialist in our field. Teacher and exposing the hidden curriculum. You heard it first here, folks, just so you know. Now, EPAs allow for direct feedback on a particular clinical presentation or professional aspect encountered on your shift. There's milestones built within the EPAs, but there's also an overall EPA rating, a numeric evaluation of one to five, where one stands for I, the evaluator, had to do the activity at hand for the trainee, and five stands for I, the evaluator in this case, did not need to be there. Now, if I may speak on behalf of others, as residents, we all tend to be a little bit type A, and I find that there's a, 
unspoken disappointment in ourselves when we don't get a four or a five on the scale. Chad, how do you feel about getting anything below four or five on these EPAs? No, I definitely agree with you. Starting out with CBD and residency in general, the mindset for me at least was getting a three or below equaled failure. But quickly, you realize that getting that three equates to an opportunity to actually grow rather than failing. And I need to get better in this domain. It gives me the opportunity to reflect on how I can better my skill and strive towards attaining those fours and fives. On this note, actually accepting it's okay to not succeed the first time around. No one's perfect at everything. I can tell you the first time I put a central line in, it took about an hour and uh, my co-resident- That's pretty good actually. Yeah, well, I had Alicia Greer kind of guiding my hand the entire <laughs> way through. But I believe that growth mindset is the key to being successful and getting the most out of this new CBD curriculum. Competency by design is all about embracing the new challenges. And if that means striking out when someone's asking you, what are the diagnostic criteria of GCA? And you get one out of five, doesn't mean you're dumb. And it means that you're going to accept that challenge, read Rosen's a little bit more, mm -hmm. and actually know the next four out of five. So the next time they get asked that, you're better at it. And so what I'm hearing is that you're trying to be like Barney Stimson. Right? <laughs> Challenge accepted, right? Yeah, exactly. I had a feeling that T-Chan would love this. <laughs> like I even wrote it on my script. I said T-Chan would love <laughs> listening to this right now. In this lifelong learning profession of ours, I think it's very important we stay humble and realize there will always be more diseases to learn about, newer guidelines to familiarize ourselves with, and newer challenges to deal with at our workplace. Tichen, do you think this is the approach that most trainees are taking nowadays? I, I mean, I think that it's a transition, right? Um, up until this point, you've been the person that you are, and you've had to jump over you know, like hurdles and um, some people more than others, right? Like mm -hmm. um, you've had to struggle and you've had to, you know, do well in exams. And I guess now medical school, even when I went to medical school, it was pass fail. So we had that saying 6-0 go because 6-0 was where <laughs> 60 was the pass rate. And so, so like, I think that we are trying to normalize that it's okay to be imperfect in this imperfect world. And I think that getting these scores on a daily basis, eventually you, you can't keep up that vigilance and be disappointed every day. And so I think that what I'm starting to see, and this is something that we're also trying to teach people, is it's okay to like reach for an insane goal for yourself mm -hmm. and also cycle back to do something that is actually realistic. Right. So for instance, can I tell the story about our last oh, yeah, block? Sure. So block 13 and PGY1, Chad says, I want to learn about flow in the emergency department. And I said, well, that's probably a senior level skill, but let's go for it. It's a little bit outside of your reach right now as a PGY1. Mm -hmm. And I think most people are like, what? She taught him about that stuff. And I'm like, okay with that. Because what we did was we pulled up the transition to practice EPA. We unlocked all the milestones. We dropped them all down. And then we had a discussion as we went through the shift. And I think I didn't even log the mark necessarily but I was like you were one out of five like you didn't follow the department and you were like yeah I get that like totally but the idea would be that we use these scaffold to have a great conversation you picked up a couple of tricks along the way and uh, we had some good conversations about what we should do next mm -hmm. and then we laid the foundation for next time Chad might actually try it maybe later in PGY2 and we'll try it again and we'll try it again. And so the idea would be it's okay to have that period where you're actually using these as a learning tool to guide where you need to get. Um, and if you're logging in, I think we logged it. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> yeah, but 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 that's okay because it means that you you reached for it. And mm -hmm. I think that, that shows some, some level of growth. Um, and I think that 
that should be okay and that should be the culture that we're trying to create and hopefully we are starting to create that in at least our residency program. Yeah, for sure. I actually remember the beginning of my first year myself with one of my very um, uh, first mentors uh, and now my really good mentors currently who threw me in. It was like first block of PGY1, emergency medicine rotation and threw me into resuscitation. And it was a difficult resuscitation. It wasn't even like an basic ACLS guideline resuscitation, if I may say that these days. And yet I like, I got, I think a one or two and I went home and I studied it like no tomorrow. And then next week I took a course and became an instructor for ACLS. <laughs> so, you know what? I think good things do come from it for sure. Now, what about, uh, if I may go back to teaching for one second, what about the staff and the supervisors? Do you feel like they're on board with a new design? Do you feel like they get the new curriculum? Is there more learning to do? I think there's always more learning to do, right? Mm -hmm. Just like growth mindset, like I would be a fool to say, you know, we got this, right? But remember, this is now taking the things that we all had to try to like heat seek and find. It was kind of like playing a big game of battleship, right? Where you're <laughs> like, what does my preceptor want from me? K7, right? Like that's yes. basically what we were trying to do. Um, and I don't think that that's the case anymore. So for us, I think it's helping us clarify what we're looking for with you guys and having that good conversation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, um, Paperwork is a real burden <laughs> in the emergency department with EHRs or even just even if you're just charting. And so I think that, you know, it's going to take us some time to like reframe um, these opportunities, which can be perceived as more paperwork, as opportunities to have great conversations. Gotcha. Um, but I think that we can get there. And I think that so far we've seen some really great comments and stuff from all our community sites, like even those that are like in Toronto are engaging with our system and giving us high quality feedback about the performance of our trainees when they go guest star at, um, I guess it's Michael Guerin Hospital or uh, New York, uh, sorry, North York General Hospital. Yeah. So we've definitely had our trainees take this other places. And I think they are fostering that encounter where you actually have good feedback. And, and having had some experience in this zone, our previous iterations of residents had always done something like this, which was a program assessment. We called it the McMaster Module Assessment Program, McMap, um, which is different from the EPAs, maybe a little less complex. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, at the time we tried to flip some of the culture and I think we did, hopefully by the time mm -hmm. you guys arrived. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference is that um, uh, I think that you guys are actually getting more feedback from what I can tell. Uh, based on focus groups and interviews with the residents, then the then then it's being written down. And so if what's written down is like even just the tip of the iceberg. I'm very happy because it means that every day you guys are getting some insights and feedback. And I think that that's hopefully like, kudos to all our faculty and our community sites and even the ones that are in you know the dark side of Toronto, <laughs> uh, where uh, where we're actually getting some participation in that mentorship. For sure. You can already see the differences between the beginning of the year to now the end of the year, let's say, on what the faculty's engagement is. Now, if there's one overall take-home message for fellow residents and trainees out there going through the competency-based by design curriculum, what would that be? Maybe we'll start off with Chad and then we'll end off with T-Chad. Yeah, for sure. I think that the CBD curriculum has really opened the dialogue on shift with preceptors who can provide that feedback on a specific case that you did that day. For example, let's deconstruct that resuscitation that you've done for the first time ever today rather than getting that overall evaluation saying, good shift, saw lots, learned lots. When you have that app open on your, your phone or you pull it up on the computer, open to that specific EPA that you now have that opportunity to dissect each individual part via the milestones, and then actually have a chance to create that conversation with your preceptor about what you did well and what you need to work on, the feedback is way more constructive and actually promotes that growth mindset. 
For example, uh, with me and T-Chan on Block 13, uh, we had this acute STEMI that came in and I gave it my best stab. And uh, she said, great job with X, Y, and Z, but let's start to think about the next steps on, on the next time you get a STEMI and how you can improve on it. And overall, uh, the feedback for that specific case morphed into a discussion on how I did uh, as a learner on the entire shift as a whole, rather than having that fixed mindset where it was good shift, I must be amazing. Now it's, I'm probably not that great in a certain amount of cases that I saw today, but here's where I did well. Overall, this is the feedback I'm gonna take home, read about and come back at the next shift and be better. Yeah, definitely uh, better for lifelong learning for, for sure. sure. Now, Tichen, how about you? As the expert founding leader of the CBD curriculum here at Mac and as one of the preceptors who give these evaluations every day, what would be your take home point? I think the take home point here is really to think about this as an opportunity to have a great conversation. Sure, there's a number associated with it. Sure, there's some comments there. But at the end of the day, what you're here to do in residency is to suck out all the learning opportunities you can. And I think that this is a, a system by which you can actually have that conversation and make it. Um, like we give you guys the mandatory part, but really what it is is that it's it's mandatory because that gives you guys the power to go up to someone and say, someone that's much more senior than you, to say, hey, can you teach me something? Which I think in the past, the hierarchy has been the other way, where um, if it was optional, then people would be like, oh, do you really need to fill out this form? Let's just like pretend we didn't, you know, need to, you know. And, and I think that what we want to do is stand behind you guys as a residency program and say, no, 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 this is mandatory. They won't pass. If you want Chad to someday be our colleague, which I think everyone wants to, and Joanna and all the other residents, like we want you guys. We're, we're short staffed, right? Like everywhere across Canada, we know we're down. Like we need thousands more emergency physicians. So I think that if you want these folks to be successful, to be the best doctor they can be on day zero, we always talk about day zero of practice, um, then that's what we want to do, right? And I think that this is the kind of, system that helps us do it now is it perfect no uh does the app crash sometimes and lot like <laughs> i was having a really awkward situation where i was teaching the junior faculty about it and it just hung on me i'm like yep so you know bear with us as we can work out the kinks but thank you so much for engaging for all the teachers out there thank you so much to the learners for you know like really kind of like grabbing this as an opportunity and let's keep making our specialty even better absolutely couldn't have said it better so use EPAs as a self-directed learning tool and an opportunity to get some real constructive feedback from supervisors. And remember, a three or a one is just as good as a five, especially early on in your residency program. And it's all relative. As long as over time, throughout your residency, you're showing growth and improvement, that's all that matters, if I may put it in the black and white way. Thank you so much for being here, guys, and teaching myself and our listeners about the value of the CBD curriculum and how to best harness its benefits. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Hey everyone, it's Kevin Dong here, and I have one more announcement before we finish off our podcast episode this month. And it is a big shout out to the new Mac Emerge Global Health Steering Committee, headed by our very own Dr. Aleem Nagji. We kicked off our first meeting on July 10, 2019. 
And this is an initiative started by the leadership from the Tri Division of the Emergency Medicine Corps at McMaster to unite all the leaders in global health education and to unite global health initiatives amongst the three divisions. We were able to meet up with some of the biggest advocates for global health, such as Dr. April Cam, Dr. Michelle Liebreitz, Dr. Blair Bigham, and Dr. Jody Pritchard, amongst many others, to discuss the direction of our global health team at MacEmerge and to also promote and open up opportunities for global health initiatives sponsored by all of our departments in emergency medicine at McMaster University. Our mission is to organize and be an advocate for global health and provide opportunities for not only for our residents and trainees, but also for staff physicians to get involved as well. So if you're interested, please do not hesitate to contact the team. You can either email Dr. Aleem Nagji, or you can email the MacEmerge podcast team and we can forward the address to you appropriately. Now, one of the first things that they really wanted our podcast team to highlight was their annual trip to Namibia in January 2020. Last year, they went as a group where many of them had the opportunity to teach and collaborate with the medical hospital to advance emergency medicine, medical education internationally. This upcoming January, they will be going back to increase our partnership with the medical professionals in Namibia. If you're interested in getting involved or have questions or just excited for opportunities such as this, please let us know at Mac Emerge Podcast. And that's about it. Stay tuned for the next month's episode coming out every first day of every month. Add us on iTunes as well as subscribe to us on SoundCloud and we will make sure to deliver every month with brand new content relevant to everyone in our community. Until next time, see you later. Oh, and one last thing. Big shout out to our ICRE 2019 speakers this year, Dr. Farah Jazuli, Dr. Quang No, Dr. Jonathan Sherbino, Dr. Catherine Tong, and of course our very own Dr. Teresa Chan, who represented MacEmerge hard this year by being amazing presenters and speakers. I heard they had an amazing time this year, and you should definitely consider it next year when it's hosted in Vancouver. Anyways, finally, yes, until next time, we'll see you later. Have a good one. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge Podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back emerge out!